Heavenly Father, we've gathered here to, to worship you because you are a faithful God. You have caused us to put our faith in Christ that we might not only be redeemed but follow him all of our days. We praise you for the examples that you've given us in both the Old and New Testament. Men like Abel and Enoch and Noah. Today, Abraham and Sarah. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in increasing our faith. Not just as individuals, but as a church. That we would indeed follow you when that means not knowing where we're going. That we would not live as if this were truly our home. But we would be the pilgrims and the sojourners and the exiles in a foreign land. Casting our eyes and keeping our hope fixed upon the city. Branning, can you do something about that? No? Okay. Thank you. Father, we ask that you would cause our hearts to hear the word clearly and in so doing be rightly transformed by it, that you would make us a people of great faith too. We ask it, Lord, for the blessing in our lives individually as a church, and we ask it for your glory, that through this body, a living testimony would go out to this world they might too see Christ and repent and believe. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. <laughs> Technology. I can't stand it at times. You know, for 20 years we fought to keep the baptismal pool warm. And it was like 100 degrees today. Caden is sweating and I'm sweating. I'm still, my, fo- my glasses are still fogging up. <sighs> I don't think that they worried about the heat of the water in the first century when they were being baptized. Um, I'm so thankful you're here. I'm so thankful that you were able to see a baptism today. Uh, Kirk said at the beginning, we, we would love to have a baptism every single Sunday. We, we have a chance to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. It's so glorious to have those ordinances together. I pray you were encouraged by it and that you thought to yourself when you were baptized and you made that profession of faith before God and man and that it caused you to be rekindled in your heart, your love for Christ. If you don't have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11, please do so. We have been working our way now for the past several weeks through this most incredible and very difficult text. And we are coming into, we've come into the the heroes of the faith, Hebrews chapter 11. We had a chance to look at Abel and Enoch and Noah last week. And this week we get a chance to look at Sarah and Abraham. And the focus obviously is faith the faithfulness of the saints, more importantly, the faithfulness of God. Now, that word faithfulness is not a word that we like to use today because it rubs against our fiercely autonomous way of life. We don't want to speak about faithfulness in marriage because that prohibits us from getting a divorce. 
We don't want to speak about faithfulness at work because that prohibits us from getting that better job right down the street. We don't talk about faithfulness in politics because currently that's just a stupid thing to talk about. There is no faithfulness in politics. We even struggle talking about it in the context of the local church because that means commitment and our flesh hates commitment. Friends, staying faithful may be dismissed by the popular culture as a bygone virtue. But according to the word of God, it is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. The church cannot forsake faithfulness in Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 10, if you were with us, the author culminated his fourth significant warning in the book with these vital words about the importance and the necessity of faith. Just cast your eyes up to verse 35 with me. Hebrews 10, 35. The author said, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then in verse 38, he said, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the encouragement in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The true believer has faith, and in that faith, there's preservation for the soul. And then he goes into chapter 11, and he gives the definition of this faith that he's talking about in verse 1. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The objective guarantee, as we looked at two weeks ago, that the things we hope for in Christ will, in fact, come to pass. Entering the presence of God, drawing near to God, being made sinless, receiving a glorified body, dwelling in the presence of God forever, enjoying the eternal city that Abraham fixed his eyes on. And we're told it is the objective proof, this faith, that what God has promised to do for his people in Christ, he will do. Now, if he is in fact talking to Christians from a Jewish background, he gives this definition, and then being good, the good preacher and teacher, he's going to illustrate through the Old Testament. He wants to show the church that's receiving this letter that, in fact, this is how this faith was lived out. And last week, we had a chance to look at Abel and how his offering was better because he worshiped God from the heart in that offering. And we got a chance to look at Enoch and how Enoch, we're told in the Old Testament, that he walked faithfully with the Lord. And as a result, at the age of the young age of 365, God grabbed him and brought him home. And then we saw Noah's obedience, building the ark in spite of all circumstances and saving his family in the process. Abel's worship, Enoch's intimacy, and Noah's obedience, all characteristics of this definition of faith we get in verse 1. This week, we turn to Abraham and to Sarah, two of the most well-known and, I would argue, some of the most important figures in the covenant story. And what we will see, and I pray if you're paying close attention, is how faith enables a believer to persevere to the end, to preserve the soul. This week, we get to see the following, the looking and the believing, how biblical faith follows God, how biblical faith looks heavenward, and how biblical faith believes that God is faithful. That sounds like a simple statement, but probably one of our greatest struggles. Biblical faith follows God, number one. Number two, looks heavenward. And number three, believes God is faithful. Are you with me, saints? Okay. Number one, biblical faith follows God. 
You've probably seen the pattern already 19 times in chapter 11. The author introduces each historical figure with the phrase, by faith. You can also translate that by the means of faith. By the means of faith, each and every person illustrated in chapter 11 trusted implicitly in the goodness and faithfulness of God. And Abraham is no exception. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, listen closely, not knowing where he was going. And so the first evidence that we have that Abraham understood this definition of faith in verse 1 is that he followed God even though he had no idea where God was leading him. This man who would become, according to Romans 4.16, the father of the faithful, this man was called by God to gather his, his family, his estate, and go to an unknown land. Now we know from Genesis chapter 11, he had already followed his father out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he went up to Haran. So we know that he did that. He was faithful to follow Terah. And then we're told in Genesis 12 that God called Abraham out of Haran to leave to go to a promised land, a land yet revealed to Abraham. This is what we're told in Genesis 12.1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abraham went, he and his household, they departed from Haran. And so both characteristics of the definition of faith in verse 1 are revealed and exemplified in the life of Abraham. He believed in things hoped for, an inheritance for his children, he believed in that which was not yet seen, a land that had yet to been revealed to him by God. And so by faith, Abraham went out courageously. And that word obey literally in the Greek and the Hebrew actually means he went out with a desire to obey. He was eager to obey God. Venturing out into a strange, unknown land, trusting the God who said, Genesis 12:1, I will show you, I will lead you. In other words, Abraham responded to uncertainty in his life by simply trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of the living God. That God would be faithful to bring him into a land. That God would be faithful to give him an inheritance. He simply trusted God's word. God had spoken and Abraham believed and obeyed. He believed that God was truly good and was looking out for Abraham and his family's best interests. He believed that God was faithful and that he would keep his promises. This is so early in the story, the creation redemption story, and yet we see such incredible faith by a man who had so little revelation compared to what we have today in the Bible. This characteristic of biblical faith following, now listen, saints, without having all the answers, simply because God is good and God is faithful, we struggle with today. I would argue that it's sorely lacking in the Western church today, or at least misunderstood. We have such an obsession with data and information and scientific proof that it often inhibits the Christian's ability to simply trust in God's word. Because God has spoken, God is good, and God is faithful. Following God in the direction he is leading, even when you don't know where he's leading you or what it'll be like when you get there. One, of, one way I think this faith is lacking today, certainly in the culture, and I would argue in the church, is in the institution of marriage. 
I was trying to think of certain examples, but this one really hit home. In 1960, the U.S. Census Bureau recorded first-time marriages for men at 23 years of age and for women at 20. In 2018, the average age for the first-time marriage is 30 for men and 28 for women. Now, there are several factors that lead to this seven- to eight-year delay in marriage. College, careers, premarital sex, unrealistic expectation, extended adolescence, of course. But there's one piece of this dialogue that continues to come up, and that is fear. That is fear. Fear of the marital commitment. Fear until a death do you part vow. It's understandable that this would be a problem today. Many of the young men and women considering marriage come from divorced families. And so they say, I don't want to make that same mistake. I'm going to wait until I know absolutely 100% it's right. Or I won't get married at all. So instead of trusting God with the uncertainty that is part of any marriage, even a good marriage, there's uncertainty. Instead of obeying God's creation ordinance in Genesis 2.24, when God said a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, many are deciding to wait or not get married. It is a crisis of faith. To combat this fear of uncertainty, many Christians try to overcome a lack of faith, not by simply turning to God and trusting in his word, but by looking for signs and wonders, trying to make connections with circumstantial things taking place in their life in order to discern God's will. My beloved, God has given to the church the Holy Spirit and the Bible and brothers and sisters in Christ to discern God's will. This may sound strange, but that's the normative means according to the Word of God. Now, you might be saying, Abraham had it easy. God spoke to him. Abraham heard him speak audibly. If God spoke to me audibly, I would listen too. You say it's much harder today because God's not talking in my ear. Some say it's easier today we don't have God's word. We do have God's word. I would say we have more of God's word than Abraham did. But just because God does not speak like this today to people does not mean that God does not lead his people specifically. It does not mean that he hasn't given us a means of grace to follow him specifically, just like Abraham. Every major decision we make, going to college, taking a new job, moving to a new area, getting married, getting baptized, joining a church, every single major decision we make has an unknown attached to it and requires a measure of faith. But following God in faith is not submitting to the unbiblical adage, let go and let God. I will sit back and see what God does. Nor is it stumbling blindly through life thinking, well, God is leading me. I need not be concerned with my decisions or the consequences of my decisions because God is leading me. Nor, now listen, saints, nor is it looking for all these alleged opened and closed doors. And I want to be patient here. If you say, I went to a job fair and I got a job, God opened a door. Or I applied to Stanford, I didn't get in, God closed the door. He also closed it on the other 44,000 students that year who just so happened to want to go there. Or maybe you saw an advertisement on television for discounted plots of land in Florida. 
So you called, and they still had seven lots available. And you said, seven, that's the number of completion of the Bible. That must be a sign. I should move to Florida. My beloved, we do this a lot. That's called superstition. That's paganism. That's not following God. That's not seeking God. That's not how the Word calls us to follow God. Contemporary Christians often talk about God opening and closing doors. That word in the Greek, thura, it's used 39 times in the New Testament. Only four times is it used in the context of discerning God's will to make a decision. And every single time, it's about evangelism and the gospel. Not college, not jobs, not moving here or there. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul said, A wide door for effective work has been opened to me. Colossians 4, 3, Paul said, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ. Acts 14, 27, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Faithful obedience to the will of God, pursuing God in your life will not be exercised by you looking for open and closed doors. And it doesn't mean that God does not do that, but that's certainly not the normative means that God wants you to pursue wisdom and knowledge. Walking by faith like Abraham in the church age is to be exercised in the context of a body of believers. In other words, through the study of God's word in community, through the faithful prayer with brothers and sisters in Christ in community, and the counsel of many, Proverbs 15:22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. The Holy Spirit works to lead his people by his word in the church that sound odd to you? You think, what was the last major decision you made that you came to the pastors and you came to the church brothers and sisters and you said, I want you to pray for this. I want you to open up the word. I want to know that this is God's will for my life. It's an odd thing today. It wasn't for much of the history of the church. The Holy Spirit works through God's people in his word to help us make decisions to follow God. Unknown still by faith, yes, but wisely confidently, and I would argue communally. We're not supposed to make these foolish, blind, autonomous leaps of faith, but rather submitting to a biblically informed, prayed over, church-involved, Holy Spirit leading. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul is instructing on discerning God's will. Listen to what he says. Ephesians 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he says in verse 17, understanding what the will of the Lord is. How are we to do this? Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that's hard to do. It's hard for us to submit to one another if you have no idea what I'm doing. It's hard for you to breathe life into my decision-making process if I've excluded you from that process. Going back to the marriage example, instead of allowing fear, to influence a young couple or looking for a sign that he or she is the one for you. You say, well, he was born in the same month. Must be a sign. We both think that Darth Vader is the ultimate cinematic villain of all time. Or maybe you say to yourself, when we met, we were both reading 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God was talking about marriage. That must be a sign. Instead of fear and superstition, wouldn't you want your parents and the church praying about this, counseling on this, studying the word of God, God together on this, therefore able to make a decision in the context 
of the Spirit of Christ. This will not eliminate the unknown. You still got to walk by faith because God wants you ultimately to trust and lean upon Him. But it will not be a blind faith or a superstitious faith. It'll be a faith decision informed by the Holy Spirit, God's Word, and God's people. Enabling you to discern God's leading wisely with the assurance that He is in fact directing your path. So first we see, I pray, Abraham's faith that enabled him to follow God even though he didn't know where he was going. That is a characteristic that we want in our lives. Not blindly, not by fear, not by superstition, but by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, in the context of the church. We are to follow God. Number two, biblical faith looks heavenward. Look at verse 9 with me. Chapter 11, verse 9. By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's obedience to God led him out of Haran and 400 miles southwest to the land of promise, we know the land of Canaan. We're told in Genesis 12, 5, Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, we know this land to be the place that God would lead his people through Moses out of Egypt and into the promised land through Joshua. But here in the very early stages of this redemptive story, we learn that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they, they stayed there, they lived there as foreigners, not as citizens. They were a nomadic people, never at home, never enjoying the rights of citizenship, never building towns or cities. Not because they were unable. We know from Abraham's rescue of Lot that he had the might to take the land. But Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had fixed their eyes on a better home, on a better place. Look at verse 10. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, verse 10 does not nullify their full expectation of possessing a real land and becoming a real people here on earth. But it is not what sustained their faith. Rather, in faith, they look forward beyond their lifetime, beyond their children's lifetime. They look forward to what the author of Hebrews calls the heavenly city. I hope that when you hear that, it causes your heart to go, yes. The heavenly city, the heavenly city designed and built by God himself. And the author says, a city that has foundations. You say, well, wait, don't, don't all cities have foundations? Even then, certainly the cities had foundations. But this was a different foundation. This was a permanent foundation, a city designed and built by God that would last how long? Forever and ever. A forever and ever city where God would gather with his people, where we would live for eternity with him. This hope hit close to home as my family and many of our friends fled our neighborhood, evacuating because of a fire. This past week, as you stand in your house and you think, what should I take? I don't have any expensive pieces of art. So we said, they're going, okay, I guess we need some clothes. So we put some clothes in. 
when all your physical possessions are an east wind away from turning to ash, you realize this is no place to put my foundation. There's no hope in this place. A better city built by God whose foundations are eternal. Look at verse 13. The author says, These, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these men all died in faith having received, having not received the things promised. What was that? The city designed and built by God. The city that had foundations that lasted forever and ever. But the author tells us that even though they died before receiving this great promise and enjoying these eschatological truths, they nevertheless, look at the latter part of verse 13, they saw them, they saw the promise of the heavenly city of God, they saw them and they greeted them from afar. Now that's one of those translations that loses all of its luster in the English. To see and greet from afar, it was a, it was a metaphoric expression to salute a city you love. It's an expression that describes a traveler, a weary traveler, who after months or years being away from his homeland, gets a glimpse of his homeland from afar, and he salutes it from his heart in love because he loves the place. So filled with joy and excitement at going home. The patriarch saw a heavenly city with eyes of faith and they saluted it. They welcomed it by faith with great joy and great excitement. How do we know that? Look at the latter part of verse 13. The result was they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Not in a negative sense and not in a, as downcast pilgrims. Just the opposite. By faith they acknowledged that this was not their ultimate home. By faith they said this is not our end. Not in this fallen world. They saw themselves truly as pilgrims and sojourners passing through and therefore listened closely, saints. They did not try to make it their home. They did not try to make this their home. What a profound application point for the Western church today. What a profound and I would argue convicting point for us all. When the spotlight of faith is shown upon how Christians and live, how they live and relate in this world, what does the world see? do they see when they look upon us? Do they see us striving and straining to make this place our home? Do they see us pouring foundations with our time and our money and our energies to make this our best life now? You can fill in the blank. The pursuit of that for you is it building your reputation your retirement, your stock portfolio, your promotions. Is it the new car? Is it the new house? Is it the perfect husband? Is it the perfect wife? Does the world see the Western church striving to make this our home even though we know Christ said it will not last? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Why? Because that's our ultimate home. That's the end for the Christian. By faith, our patriarchs did not fall into this trap. They said, we're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're not going to build a city. God will do that later. We're fixing our hope completely. They would have said this then. Completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Look at verse 14. For people who speak thus, 
for people who say that we're strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, not here, somewhere else. We know it to be heavenly. In fact, the word in the Greek for homeland is patrice, patristic, father. In fact, I, I think a better translation would be they were seeking the father's land, the fatherland. Yeah, that's better. I like that. They happily remained pilgrims on earth by holding loosely to the things of this world. They happily remained sojourners by holding tightly to the things of God. Their love for God, their love for one another. The church today, the context of missions, that we love the Lord and we look forward to that city and we want people to know it and be saved too. As citizens of the heavenly kingdom, God's people are not to live attached to this world. Because this world is not our home. Now, so that we don't misunderstand this, does that mean that we're not to work to make this world a better place? Fighting for justice, sharing the gospel and making disciples, praying as Jesus did, that life on earth, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, is as it is in heaven? Of course not. We are to do all these things and so much more in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when the church truly lives as sojourners in this place, wanting to make this world a better place for the glory of God and our love of neighbor, but never ever growing attached to it or allowing the things of this world to bind us because we know it is not our home. My beloved, when you, when you get that, there is a freedom and joy. There is a way to live that does not bind you to the material things of this world. There's a way to live in Christ as a sojourner that enables you to minister and love and sacrifice and serve because this is not your home if you're in Christ. This is not. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we will not only be blessed in being in the world but not of the world, but we will be a powerful testimony to those who do not know Christ. Verse 14 said that these lives will make it clear that we are seeking a homeland, the Father's land. Our lives will testify to the world, look at verse 16, that we desire a better country that is a heavenly one. I think one of the most convicting aspects of this passage is that if we do not live like sojourners and pilgrims, that our testimony to the world is poor. It's poor. When the world looks upon us as a people, when it looks upon you and your life, does it see a life lived with the hope of heaven? Or does it see the church participating in the rat race of the culture? Trying, striving, pursuing all that you can get right now. Leaving your friends and families and neighbors in the dark because they don't have a vision of heaven because our lives do not reflect that. No vision of heaven because our lives are just like those who do not profess Christ. No authenticating power in revealing the things hoped for and the things not yet seen. It's not a faith in things hoped for, but a what? A consumption in everything now. It's not a certainty of things not seen, but a pursuit to possess all that is seen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... According to verse 16, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, we're told, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
Because they lived as sojourners and because they recognized they were pilgrims and exiles in this land, he was not ashamed to be called their God. He said, I prepared a city for you. Live, serve, love. Pursue your neighbor. But this is not your home. Keep it fixed upon God. They had put their hope in foundations that were guaranteed. They did what Paul said later in 2 Corinthians 4.18. To look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So first we see that biblical faith is following God. Number two, I pray you're still with me. We see that biblical faith looks heavenward. And lastly, a biblical faith believes that God is faithful. A biblical faith in Jesus Christ believes that God is faithful. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, I cannot tell you how much discussion there is on this, these couple verses. The commentators are split. Is it Sarah or is it Abraham is the subject of the discussion. Um, in order to keep it simple, I'm going to tell you I've landed on Sarah. And so we're just going to stick with that. Sarah, like her husband, we're told by faith was able to conceive and give birth when? When she was past the age. Now we read this and we think, well, she was just old and Abraham was old, therefore they could not conceive. But it goes a little bit further than that. In Genesis chapter 17 and 18, we're told that Sarah was 90 when she conceived Isaac and Abraham was a ripe old 99. So old, the author says in verse 12, he describes Abraham as a man who is as good as dead. Yeah, feel like that at times. In other words, listen, physically, they were physically unable to conceive the child. They were unable to be intimate. And therefore, the chance of Sarah and Abraham giving birth to the child of promise was zero. Zero. But we must remind ourselves that faith is not in the assurance of statistics nor in mathematical probability. Faith is the guarantee of things hoped for and the proof of things unseen. Listen, Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, here's the promise, your very own son shall be your heir. And then God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and in that faith, God credited him with the righteousness of Christ. Two chapters later, in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, I will give you a son by Sarah. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, you've got to say, I gotta, you got to wait just a minute. Because when they first heard this, both of them did what? They laughed. They laughed, revealing their faithless heart. They laughed because they said, we're too old to even conceive a child because we cannot be intimate. Within a year's time, they would come to believe what God said in Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, from one man, that's Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. 
the impossible becomes possible by faith in the faithful one. If it is God's will, and God has so decreed and God promises, the impossible becomes possible by faith in the faithful one who is God. Sarah conceived, verse 11, she conceived because she considered him faithful who had promised. You know, at the very core of Hebrews 11 is not the faithfulness of man. It's not Abel and Enoch and Noah and Sarah and Abraham. At the very core, at the very heart of Hebrews 11 is the faithfulness of the one who promises. In fact, that that phrase in verse 11, to promise, it's used four times in Hebrews. Every single time it's attached to God and every single time it's attached to God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise, to do what he said he's going to do. And it's used then and it's used now, I pray, to remind us of the trustworthiness of God so that when we are wayward, when we find ourselves stumbling, God forbid, Hebrews 10, turning away from the living God. When we do that, we will be reminded of his trustworthiness and we will stay the course. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We hold fast, not because our faith is so strong, but because God is faithful. We hold fast because the God who made these promises will fulfill them for those in Christ. Sarah would conceive, even though it was physically impossible. She would give birth to Isaac, the son of the promise, and God would, from his children, from Jacob, bring about descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore would come. And not just descendants to populate the earth, born to inhabit this place only, but descendants through Christ who would what? Who would reign with Christ over this earth. Look at verse 10 again. This city that has foundations that we know comes down from heaven to earth, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 16, a better country, that is a heavenly country. My beloved, by faith, that's your end. By faith in Christ, your end is a better country. It is a heavenly country. It is a city whose designer and builder is God. It is a city who has foundations that never, ever end. You know, in light of all that's been going on, COVID-19, rogue politicians riding in the streets, fires, hurricanes. There are lots of people dreaming about a better country. They're thinking, where can I go? Where can I get out of here? That's not what Abraham would have thought. If you're in Christ, it's not a dream. If you're in Christ, it's a promise that will be fulfilled when Christ comes again in glory. A better country, a heavenly city. The tension between the promises of God And the realization of those promises has always been held together by faith. That's the glue that keeps them. God makes the promises. I haven't got it yet. It's faith that keeps them together. It's faith that enables us to preserve our souls all the way to the end. And not a general faith, as we looked at last week, but an authentic faith in the faithfulness of God. My beloved, through Christ, God gave us the faith to follow him joyfully, just like Abraham. By faith, we follow God even though our future is unknown. You don't know what tonight holds for you. You don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. You have an idea. 
Maybe you've planned out your day or your week or your month, but you do not know. Whether you like it or not, you must walk by faith too. On the cross, Jesus Christ made our future known. John chapter 6, verse 40. By his blood, we are guaranteed. He said, I guarantee that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And then Christ said, I will raise him up on the last day. That's our hope. That's our hope. Through Christ, God gives us spiritual eyes, enabling us to pick our eyes up from this place, to fix our eyes on the heavenly city built by God and live as sojourners now. As pilgrims on this earth, serving, loving, and ministering in this fallen world, but never being bound by it. Through faith like Sarah and Abraham, we actually can believe the impossible. We can believe like Abraham, that we are all as good as dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ by grace, what? You have been saved. We can believe that salvation by grace through faith in Christ is possible because nothing is impossible for God. So you stake your whole claim, your whole life, your entire future on the grace of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Impossible for man. Not impossible for God. My beloved, like Father Abraham, we can follow God in faith all the way into the promised land. Amidst all the uncertainty and knowns in this life, all the broken relationships, all our bad decisions, the physical struggles, the spiritual and emotional suffering that comes from following Christ, we can make the journey because we know our guide, Jesus Christ, who we know to be faithful. He's trustworthy. He's a trustworthy guy that says, I will not lose one the Father gives to me. And we know he's trustworthy because he remained faithful to the Father. Listen, and I'm going to close. He remained faithful to the Father, submitting to God's will to be our Savior, even though he knew the path that he had to take. Abraham, verse 16, went out not knowing where he was going. An incredible act of faith, to be sure. Jesus Christ went out knowing exactly where he was going. And that was to the cross. He knew that by ascending the cross and paying for the sins of his people, he would experience the full wrath of his Father, the eternal and forever pain and suffering and torment we rightly deserved so that we could have life instead of death. My beloved, that's a greater act of faith. I would say the greatest act of faith ever displayed and the greatest expression of love ever known was Christ going where he knew he had to go to redeem a people like us. 1 Peter chapter 2. He, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. What love is this? My beloved, what love is this? Powerful enough to heal your rebellious hearts? Deep enough to equip you to die to your sins, to live in the righteousness that comes freely through Christ? What love is this that produces a faith that enables us to see from his head, his hands, and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down? 
What love is this that enables us in faith to ask, did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? The answer is no. A faith that enables us to sing with all our heart and mean it with all our might. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. That's the faith I want in Christ. That's the faith I want our church to have in Christ. Not in our own strength, but in Christ. In the faithfulness of God who would send a son to die for sinners like us. That we might die to sin and live to his righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us through these Old Testament sinners saved by grace what it means to walk by faith. We want to be a people who wisely, by the means of grace you've given us, follow you even when we do not know where you're leading us. We want to be a people, Father, that are not fixated on this place for our own joy, our own satisfaction. We want to see ourselves as sojourners in this foreign land, knowing this is not our home, that you might equip us as a church to serve and to love and to minister, to bring the gospel to the lost, to fight for the justice of the weak and the poor, to be a people that bring the light of the gospel but not be bound by this place. We want to be a people, Lord, that believe that the impossible is possible for you if you so decreed it. Not foolish dreamers, not those living outside of what is real, but knowing that you are faithful, that if you promised, you will bring it to pass. Even if we haven't tasted it yet, even if it's not ours yet, we want to know and believe in faith that you will faithfully bring it to pass. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified by giving us this faith, the faith of the saints of old, that we might be a people who live in such a way that the world sees us. They see our love, they see our good deeds, and it brings you honor and glory, that they see us, and as a result, the gospel with our mouths actually has, takes root in our lives, and people are saved by it. Lord, I pray you would do this here in this place, in the Cambrian Park community, with all those in our mission field. I pray that you would do it, that we might be blessed in that great work, but more importantly, I pray you would do it for your own glory, that you would be glorified in the faithfulness of the saints here in this church. I ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.